This is the third part of our series on The Birth of a Nation, a 1915 film directed by D.W. Griffith. As you may already know from listening to the previous episodes in this series, The Birth of a Nation is complicated, racist, historically important, and extremely influential, both in its subject and its technique. Today is, thankfully, our last episode on the film, where we will wrap up our time with it by describing its influence and impact. You know, I get a lot of satisfaction out of writing introductions. I love trying to find the best anecdote or metaphor or quote and using it to pique interest, to make film history as fascinating as I can because I find it deeply fascinating. But I tell you, I can't think of another introduction for a third episode on The Birth of a Nation. I don't really want to write one, and I don't feel like the film deserves one. So let's skip it, and say again here that because of some awkward planning on my part, we will be starting episode 26, titled The Birth of a Nation Part 3, with the subheading Part 4, because all three of these episodes connect together directly. I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 24 and 25 if you haven't yet, because it provides essential context for this episode. Whether you do or not, though, I'm glad you're here. And even though this episode isn't a party, I hope that you'll at least find it important and meaningful as we continue to explore the history of film together. It's our closing chapter on the most influential movie of the 1910s. This is episode 26 of the history of film, The Birth of a Nation, Part 3. My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Part 4, Narrative Innovations and Popularizations. To begin, I'd like to start with a couple of quotes. Both of these are from books published in the 1980s, and both of those books have more nuance to them than you would think from reading just these out of context. The first is from a personal favorite writer of mine, David A. Cook, in his third edition of A History of Narrative Film, published in 1981. Cook says, It should be obvious by this point that whatever it represents ideologically, the birth of a nation is a technical marvel. Griffith created it in the absence not only of established narrative conventions, but of modern cinematic technology. And to have articulated these conventions and anticipated this technology in a film of epic proportions so early in the medium's history is a monumental achievement that no one can gainsay. The second is from David Shipman in his book The Story of Cinema, published in 1982. He takes a different approach. He writes, To me, it was not only clear that Griffith had never advanced beyond a basic level of competence, but recent research has shown his claims of innovation to be false. No one seems concerned that these claims were false, probably because the industry was moving so fast probably because it all didn't seem to matter. 
The fact that some film writers till the present have accepted them simply indicates that they do not know any pre-Griffith material. Those are very different perspectives. True, Cook was writing about the birth of a nation specifically, and Shipman about Griffith generally, but, at least to me, never advanced beyond a basic level of competence would seem to cover this movie as well. So what was it? Was The Birth of a Nation a monumental leap forward in the development of cinematic language? Or was it simply perceived that way, because Griffith yelled so loudly about how amazing and important it was, while everyone else looked the other way from all of the movies that did the real innovating? Well, as you might be able to guess, the real answer lies somewhere in between those two extremes. To explore that, let's start talking about what the movie is actually famous for on a cinematic level. Let's look at Griffith's use of camera movement in The Birth of a Nation. When you hear people talk about the camera work in Griffith movies, you might initially feel a little bit confused. We've seen a camera that flows in and out of shots, moving smoothly and constantly across the frame, in Cabiria, directed by Giovanni Pastorone. Yeah, that kind of camera work? Griffith doesn't really do that. Shipman, whose greatest praise for Griffith's filmmaking is describing a scene as, quote, elaborate, says it this way, Most of the sequences in The Birth of a Nation are as static as the view of the Lumiere workers leaving their factory. Indeed, much of the film is a throwback to the days of animated tableau. And from a modern perspective, that stillness doesn't always seem like the best choice. For example, when we see northern soldiers attempt to burn down the Cameron home, it's a shot in prosemium framing, and the camera is perfectly still. A little movement would have gone a long way into making the shot more interesting. This is the case for many shots in the movie. The camera is plopped down, and that's it but not for every shot, and it's these exceptional shots that would stand out to viewers and other filmmakers. In The Birth of a Nation, there are famous pans across the whole of a Civil War battleground. As the shot moves from left to right, the audience gets a view of a huge field of battle. When taken in its entirety, the camera presents the audience with a view of the trenches from the north while allowing the southern trenches to move off-camera to the left. It creates a real panorama of the whole field, and does so with excellent dramatic flair. The act of making a panorama is actually how we get the word pan, one of the basic camera movements. Griffith, as we know, didn't do this first, nor did he coin the term. But this use of the pan was the grandest in scope many people watching The Birth of a Nation had ever seen, and would be highly influential. So would another shot popularized by the film, the tracking shot. The tracking shot is no stranger to us here on the history of film. We first learned about it back in episode 8, and one way or another, it's been with us for a while. So far, we've talked about tracking shots being on, well, tracks, but for a few episodes now, that's been a bit too narrow of a definition, so let's widen it. 
The Oxford Dictionary of Film Studies defines a tracking shot as a kind of shot where the camera and its support are both mounted on tracks, or mounted on a mobile dolly, or a moving vehicle. So, so far as the Oxford blokes are concerned, if the camera is moving on wheels or tracks at all, it's a tracking shot. Remember back to the free-flowing camera we've already mentioned, as it appeared in Giovanni Pastorone's 1914 movie Kibiria, which was a really big deal. The camera would be pushed on a dolly around sets for the film, even for otherwise simple scenes. I'm looking at you, Archimedes, sitting down to make some calculations. This kind of camera movement adds a lot of visual interest and drama to movies. And since Kibiria has been one of the most basic tools filmmakers use to create their movies. When Griffith finally comes around to using the technique himself, he does so in typical Griffith fashion. He bumps up the drama. The most tame use of the tracking shot in The Birth of a Nation is in the ballroom sequence fairly early in the film. The camera slowly pulls back as more and more dancers step in front of it, filling the space with impressive visual flair. It's one of my personal favorite shots in the film. The movement of the actors in front of the camera, referred to as blocking when talking about cinema, is excellent, and there's no getting around it. But that tracking shot is not the one that people remember. No, the truly memorable ones, to paraphrase that wise car Lightning McQueen, would make you feel like you are speed. Twice in the film, once when Ben Cameron is charging on foot through a field of battle, and once when he's all dressed up in his KKK hood and robe on horseback, the camera was mounted on the back of an automobile, and driven in front of the subject being filmed while in motion. The camera keeps pace with its subject, literally tracking it as it moves. In the case of The Birth of a Nation, this tracking shot creates energy and an incredible amount of excitement. For many, if not most, of the viewers of The Birth of a Nation in 1915, they had never so much as seen a slow tracking shot before, so to see one filmed with such speed and melodramatic flair would have been deeply impressive. Unfortunately, it was used to support the image of the clan. Using a tracking shot to follow a subject as it moves through an extended space first entered the mainstream of filmmaking with The Birth of a Nation, but it wouldn't stop there. If you think about it, it's in every movie. Tons come to mind. It is particularly noticeable in, like, every modern horror film. For real, I saw Malignant, directed by James Wan in theaters last month, and it had plenty of them. Of course, there is the most famous example ever, the tracking shot of the tricycle in the 1980 film The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. In a movie that I deeply love, the 1999 film Rushmore, directed by Wes Anderson, there was a tracking shot used for an important character scene. Just look around, and you'll see the tracking shot used to track a subject everywhere. Okay, so we've just spent some time talking about how influential the camera movement in The Birth of a Nation was but we've already admitted that these camera movements are few and far between. So why is the movie still considered so influential? Well, 
that comes down to two main things, shot setup and editing. While the camera is still for much of the movie, that stillness isn't as much of a visual problem as we've seen in many other films, because of how those shots are chosen. There are very few prosemium shots, all things considered. Instead, the camera placement varies widely, adding a welcome dose of variety and visual complexity to a very long movie. Close-ups are mixed in with medium and wide shots, showing the audience scenes of intense battle, intimate family drama, and all the emotion the actors could wear on their faces. Like we have seen in earlier movies, including the 1903 film The Sick Kitten and Griffith's own 1911 The Unseen Enemy, extreme close-ups are used to show specific objects or actions we need to pay attention to. All in all, this is the first feature film that we have looked at so far, which, more or less, looks like a modern film in terms of its shot selection and variety. Going forward, many filmmakers across the world would be directly influenced by Griffith's particular style of camera placement and shot setup. This, in turn, would be the birth of the standard Hollywood style that is either sought after or rebelled against to this day. As for the editing that everyone always talks about in The Birth of a Nation, that too is impressive, and I can't say that it's not. The film is pretty easy to follow, and its editing makes a certain amount of intuitive sense even to modern audiences. Things generally line up. People look at each other through different shots in a way that makes it clear what's going on, a cinematic rule of thumb called the 180-degree rule, which we won't talk too much about here, but we'll cover in more detail in future episodes. Griffith also combines different shots to make it clear where something is happening, before showing us a specific action or event. This is called an establishing shot, which is usually a wide shot, followed by more, closer shots to show the action. So, actually, those big battle scenes we talked about a little bit ago serve double duty. Not only does the audience get to see big explosions and soldiers running around, but they also know exactly where the characters are when we see them later in medium shots and close-ups, having already established that. A really good example of this in The Birth of a Nation comes just before the battle sequence, when we see a supply train in wide shot before we cut to a medium shot of a cart and then cut to a close-up of some supplies. Cutting immediately to the supplies would have been both baffling and distracting, but with the aid of an establishing wide shot, it's remarkably clear. Famously, the film builds tension constantly through its use of parallel editing, which, though we've talked about it before on this show, reaches a whole other level in this three-hour movie that is filled to the brim with it. During a massive battle, we cut back to the Camerons desperately praying for their son's survival. A gunman, a play, and an audience are all shown in turn, setting up a sense of impending dread about to be experienced by an unexpecting public. The ride of the hooded and robed KKK is intercut with a family in danger, their furious ride and quick editing filling the scene with immense energy. 
that energy would inspire evil and violent deeds against innocent people by making the clan's terrorism seem both exciting and just, which it never has been. The best description I have ever personally read about the editing in Birth of a Nation comes from a writer named Charlie Keel, so I'm just going to read it to you here. He says, quote, Combining propulsive editing rhythms predicated on diminishing shot lengths at key narrative moments with the selection of increasingly more kinetic and even closer scaled shots for the climax of such sequences, Griffith had learned to squeeze virtually every ounce of audience response out of the effective rescue scenario. If you ever hear people talk about how important and influential Griffith's parallel editing is, that's what they mean. You might think that audiences who are used to longer, simpler shots would struggle with the three-hour-long deluge of visual information that is The Birth of a Nation, but the film's implementation and synthesis of all of the advancements we've talked about on the History of Film podcast made The Birth of a Nation easier to watch than many early films. Take, for example, the assassination of Lincoln scene. That scene alone has 50 distinct shots in it within a period of five and a half minutes. That density of editing, still very novel in 1915, seems like it should have been bewildering. But it wasn't. It represents a new stage in the development of editing for film. In past episodes, we've talked about continuity editing. I described it as the cinematic word then, a phrase I borrowed from the documentary series The Story of Film and Odyssey. I said that continuity editing is about what continues from shot to shot. It could also be thought of as continuity editing, as in this happens and then this happens. That is an important definition, and the most appropriate one for talking about movies before 1915-1916, but now we need to expand that definition too. Continuity editing, from now on, should be understood as editing that not only maintains continuity in story, but also editing that preserves continuity in action, subject, and motion, a definition I borrowed from Dan Olson of Folding Ideas. Continuity editing is editing that makes it as easy as possible for the audience to understand what they are looking at, where the subject is, and the spatial and temporal relationship between the subject of one shot and the subject of another. It is the invisible editing that guides an audience through a movie without them having to think about it, and is usually noticeable, mostly when it is absent. D.W. Griffith uses this continuity editing quite proficiently in The Birth of a Nation. The Birth of a Nation helped increase the popularity of a few other things, the use of tinting to make certain scenes have a different emotional or visual quality, for example. But those are small potatoes compared to the topics we just addressed. The varied shot selection, camera movements, and the comparatively sophisticated parallel and continuity editing embraced in The Birth of a Nation would be the basic tool used to make movies until the Soviet filmmakers would develop an even more sophisticated film grammar years later. I can't be too clear about this. The Birth of a Nation, with all its ideological evils, would be the basis for the Hollywood style of filmmaking 
at the beginning of its era of dominance. Part 5. Distribution Okay, so now we know all about the filmmaking choices that made The Birth of a Nation so popular. And we could stop there, but that wouldn't be all of the story. For movies to be influential, as The Birth of a Nation was, they can't just be made. They also have to be shown. And boy oh boy was The Birth of a Nation shown. It was shown bigger and wider than ever before. The Birth of a Nation, being the brainchild of Griffith, was made to do one major thing. Get an emotional response out of its audience by filling exhibition spaces with the maximum amount of melodrama. But as visually enthralling as its shot selection and editing were designed to make it, it was still lacking an important feature. Sound. The Birth of a Nation, of course, was a silent film and I can tell you from personal experience that watching a silent film without auditory accompaniment, or worse, inappropriate music, makes even the best silent films dull to unwatchable. To be as impactful as possible, Griffith would have to make sure the music would be equal in grandiosity and scale to the film it would play with. The Birth of a Nation would premiere in a stage theater in Los Angeles, California, early in the winter of 1915, under its original title of The Klansman. The massive halls would be filled with sound as the entire Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra played the music that accompanied the film. It was a mixture of southern folk tunes, including Dixie, the unofficial anthem of the South in the U.S. Civil War, and of the great classical music of Europe. This use of music in the aristocratic European tradition served two purposes. It not only helped legitimize the birth of a nation as a genuine form of artistic expression in the United States, where movies were still often seen as seedy entertainment for the unwashed masses, but also used powerful, well-known musical themes to help convey its message and, wait for it, heighten its drama. For example, during the infamous Ride of the Clan scene, the orchestra played The Ride of the Valkyries, originally composed by Richard Wagner. This is not only a deeply dramatic piece of music that builds and builds into increasingly powerful crescendos, but also music that was designed to emphasize what were depicted as the heroic and even divine qualities of the clan. Yuck. To give you an idea of how this music could impact the way that people interpreted and interacted with the film in its premiere, let's do a little test ourselves. I'm going to play two pieces of music, and if you will, try and imagine the scene of the movie where hundreds of clan members ride to the rescue of the besieged Camerons, intercutting with that family fighting for their lives against soldiers played by white men in blackface. I know it's not the kind of thing worth imagining, but... I think this test is important. This first piece of music comes from the Kino Lorber release of The Birth of a Nation on DVD and Blu-ray, and it plays during the scene in question.
Okay, now try to imagine the exact same images you did before, but while listening to the music that played during the scene as it originally premiered in 1915. At least for me, even just imagining that musical change makes a difference in how I, as an audience member, contextualize and understand it. If it didn't for you, hopefully you can see how it would have impacted the way the audiences at the time interpreted the film. To get into a theater in Los Angeles to see The Birth of a Nation during its original run would have been an expensive experience. A ticket to see it would set you back an amazing $2, more than $54 or 46 euros in 2021. I guess that's a fair enough price to see a three-hour orchestra performance, but wow, that's a lot to see a movie. But still, people paid for it. Just seven years after cinema began in Nickelodeon's it had moved from being a cheap affair in a smoke-filled storefront with an upright piano to costing an absurdly high $2 for one ticket for one show in a full opera house with an entire philharmonic orchestra playing the music. Another big reason The Birth of a Nation is so famous is because it is the capstone of the transition away from cinema as it used to be presented in the United States, a transition that began with the showing of other epics, including those we've seen from Italy. After The Birth of a Nation, Massive, luxurious halls would be the popular image of the movie-viewing experience, not the cheap fly-by-night affairs that they were just a few years earlier. The Klansman played in its Los Angeles hall for 22 weeks, which is a long time for a movie to be in theaters, even now. Everything was going well for the film, which everyone loved and nobody... Uh Uh-oh. It turns out not everybody loved it. And already there were some people who knew about the movie and thought maybe, just maybe, the atrociously racist content of the film may have a negative impact on the lives of millions of African American people living in the United States. Certain politically active black community leaders, including William Monroe Trotter of Boston and the great W.E.B. Du Bois, quickly began to organize against the film and sought to have it censored. Despite all of its initial success, this reaction against the film was not good for Griffith. For one thing, it seems like he couldn't understand it. As hard as it may be to believe, Griffith lived in the world of his movie. In his mind, the Klansman was the truth. Black people really were a menace, and the Klan were heroes for keeping black people oppressed. What is the truth? Clearly, Griffith didn't know. But as confusing as the situation was to the director, it was also distressing. 
there was a lot of money to be made in the northeastern United States, and that money was in jeopardy because of protests by African-American rights groups. If the movie couldn't be shown, it would be disastrous for the director, who wanted all of the fame and all of the money he felt his genius and investment deserved. So he called in a favor from a friend of a friend, the President of the United States of America, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was a close friend and college classmate of Thomas Dixon, the author of the novel The Klansman. And friendship wasn't the only thing the president shared with Dixon, as Wilson was also a terrible racist and segregationist. Needing to secure widespread support for the movie, Dixon called up his old buddy Wilson and asked for just a few hours of the president's time. Woodrow Wilson agreed, and the movie, now called The Birth of a Nation, would be the first film ever screened at the White House. This was an important first, another milestone of the legitimization of cinema as an art form and a boon to the movie and its director, D.W. Griffith. After all, a presidential seal of approval means it can't be too crass, right? No surprise, Wilson loved The Birth of a Nation. How could he not? This movie vomited Wilson's own worldview out in front of him and stroked his ego at the same time. The president reportedly said after watching The Birth of a Nation, It's like writing history in lightning, and my only regret is that it is so terribly true. The hope of some activists to stop the film from being shown in the great cities of the North was always unlikely to come to fruition. But after the president saw and approved the film, the tide of culture and popular acceptance turned decidedly against them. The film toured across the northern United States, including the city of Boston, the center of the abolitionist movement 50 years earlier. When it finally made its way to New York City in the spring of 1913, it would play at a 1,200-seat theater for 44 consecutive weeks, still at a top price of $2 a seat. In the fall, it would tour across the United States, playing continually across the country for six years until its first official re-release in 1921. When all was said and done, the birth of a nation would bring in tens of millions of dollars for its investors and usher in the high-investment, high-reward model of filmmaking we still see so often with major releases and blockbusters. Those tens of millions of dollars, by the way, are not the whole story. That's only the money that went back to the producers. In those wild, early days of cinema, when piracy was rampant and books were poorly kept, it's hard to say how high ticket sales actually were. A Time Magazine article by Richard Corliss gives us two helpful ways of trying to understand it, though. One is that the 1915 movie, The Birth of a Nation, was the most widely seen movie until Gone with the Wind. That's an impressive record to hold across 24 years, the advent of sound and color film, and the worldwide market for motion pictures being fully developed. A way that may seem more visceral to all of us today, though, is the total box office take for the film, which, when adjusted for inflation, is likely around $1.8 billion dollars. 
making The Birth of a Nation the first super picture of all time. The money made by The Birth of a Nation didn't lie, and neither did its reviews. In many mainstream newspapers, the critical word on the film was one of unbridled praise. The magazine Variety called the film the last word on picture making, and so did many other publications who repeated the sentiment. As you may expect, the whole world took notice. All of the studios still making short films switched production models to making larger, more expensive movies, or died. Everyone wanted in on the millions that could now be made making movies, and have been made ever since. This process would gentrify, legitimize, and change movies in other important ways, and we'll talk about that more in future episodes. Part 6. Hate, Protest, and Response In the D.W. Griffith, The Father of Film documentary I played a little bit of last episode, a family member of Griffith recalls an exchange his relation had with a concerned observer. A person said to Griffith, If you show a picture like The Birth of a Nation in Atlanta, there will be race riots. To which Griffith replied, I hope to God they do. The man being interviewed then goes on to say that Griffith didn't actually want riots or something, which I guess may be true. I mean, I didn't personally know the guy. But however anyone may apologize for Griffith, this anecdote reveals an important point. Griffith understood from the beginning that his movie would impact race relations and would impact the lives of very real people outside of the theaters his film would be shown in. That real impact is what we're going to talk about now. How the birth of a nation's vile hatred toward millions of people inspired the reformation of a terrorist organization. How black communities in the United States organized against the film and how black filmmakers responded to it. The organization known as the Ku Klux Klan existed in the American South in the 19th century, but by the coming of the 20th century was effectively dormant. For white Southerners in 1915, the Klan was part of their past, a was that many were proud of, and an ideal that people like Thomas Dixon could write about. They were a group of supposedly noble white men who rose up and restored the post-war South to its natural order of racial hierarchy and white dominance. This, of course, was a lie, but it was commonly believed by many people. Interest in the group was growing before the Birth of a Nation movie was released. Dixon's own novel and play The Klansman are proof of that. But despite this, the Klan remained an entity of the past. With the release of the film in question, though, everything changed. Within a few days of the 1915 premiere of The Birth of a Nation in Atlanta, Georgia, a burning cross could be seen on Stone Mountain. A new Ku Klux Klan had formed there, and the leader of that group directly cited The Birth of a Nation as an inspiration for his actions. Newly recreated, the KKK spread themselves wherever they could, capitalizing on the popularity of The Birth of a Nation and using it as a recruiting tool. 
The Klan bought their own copy of the film and showed it publicly to increase support for their organization. They used promotional material made for the film in newspaper recruitment ads. Klan members attending regular showings of The Birth of a Nation would make their presence known by cheering when the hooded figures appeared on the screen. The Klan engaged local theaters to show and re-show the film, handing out promotional material before and after the screenings. The organization capitalized, in every way they could, on the birth of a nation portraying them as heroic. By the 1920s, the new clan was more numerous and wider spread than ever before. While in the 19th century, the KKK was only a southern organization, in the 20th century, they had major power across the U.S., stretching into the center of the country and even into the Pacific Northwest. It is possible, I suppose, that the Klan could have reformed and spread so enormously without the birth of a nation. I find it unlikely. The film would be impactful to the white nationalist terrorist organization known as the Ku Klux Klan for many decades. As weird as it may seem, the KKK watched The Birth of a Nation almost compulsively into the 1970s. In his book Black Klansman, undercover police officer Ron Stallworth recalls that the film was an exciting point of interest to Klan members in Colorado and was used as an outreach tool to other hate groups in the state, including the American Nazi Party. Think about that. In the 1970s, the decade that saw Jaws, The Godfather, and Star Wars, the Klan still felt so strongly about the power of this black-and-white silent film that they showed it constantly. That speaks to the intellectual capacity and creativity of racist and terrorist organizations like the Klan, who by nature are incapable of producing any art of merit. And that includes you, Lenny Riefenstahl. But this is not the only side of the story, because as the Klan and all of their evil wrongheadedness organized because of the film, black communities in the United States organized in response to it. Even before the premiere of The Birth of a Nation, the only six-year-old NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, sprung into action against the movie. Convinced that the film's propagandistic nature would increase overt acts of racial violence in the United States, the NAACP organized marches and gatherings against the film. They also released pamphlets that corrected the flagrant rejection of actual history that appears in the movie. The purpose of these rallies and pamphlets was simple. Stop the birth of a nation from being shown. The efforts of the NAACP were not without precedent. When the play The Klansman was shown in Philadelphia, race riots broke out and performances of the show were banned. In Boston, the mayor listened to his black constituents, including the amazing William Monroe Trotter, and ordered that the play not be shown. It was reasonable to think that the film adaptation of the same material would receive similar treatment. In Los Angeles, NAACP leaders petitioned local film censors, the mayor, and the city council to ban the film. Ultimately, their calls went unheard by white officials and the white public. The Birth of a Nation would premiere on time. This was essentially repeated across the country. 
Small concessions would be made here and there to black community leaders and organizations. About 500 feet of film was cut from the finished movie, much to the dismay of D.W. Griffith, who thought his movie was super awesome just the way it was. This is mostly a historical footnote, though, as the material in the film that actually did and does harm, you know, the whole second half, is all still pretty much there. No one and no organization could change the trajectory of the film. The birth of a nation would continue to sweep the nation, make its gazillions of dollars, and be forever remembered in film history books. And the NAACP would continue to challenge screenings of the film at least 120 times over the next 60 years. Still, though, I wouldn't call the NAACP's efforts a failure. Challenging the most famous film ever made the association known nationwide. As Steven Weinberg writes in his article, The Birth of a Nation and the Making of the NAACP, quote, The campaign against the birth of a nation had elevated the association to a position of national stature, and indeed preeminence in the struggle for civil rights in America. In the future, the NAACP would go on to play an essential role in the greatest civil rights struggles and movements in United States history. They continue to do so to this day. Also here, I have a clarifying note. While the NAACP did seek to ban the birth of a nation in an attempt to stem its malicious influence, not all of its members felt that that was the right course of action. The already referenced Weinberger notes that some members of the association voted against the plan to censor the film, not because they didn't think the film was racist propaganda, which it totally was, but because they were opposed to any kind of censorship. With that small caveat out of the way, let's talk about another important subject that we will have to cover a tiny bit now and much more in the future. Black filmmakers of the silent era. Initially, when the NAACP was drumming up support for their proposed ban of The Birth of a Nation, many of their allies rejected the notion outright, saying, strangely, use this art in your own defense. In other words, fight fire with fire, words with words, and movies with movies. The association noted that this was senseless, with the great civil rights leader W.E.B. Du Bois himself writing, the cost of picture-making and the scarcity of appropriate artistic talent made any such immediate answer beyond question. That, of course, was true. The infrastructure and equipment that allowed filmmakers and producers to make their movies was prohibitively expensive and was far from the reach of the young and poorly funded NAACP. On top of that, Jim Crow laws and other forms of systemic racism were designed to prevent black people from expressing themselves freely in an open marketplace of ideas, yet another big subject in film history specifically that we will be coming back to. For these reasons, the birth of a nation would not be responded to in film, at least for a few years. Here, we meet Oscar Michaud, a black homesteader and author who wrote about black characters. In 1919, he would fundraise for a film adaptation of his own novel and make a movie called The Homesteader, which he would direct himself. In 1920, Michelle would write and direct two more films, Within Our Gates 
and The Symbol of the Unconquered, A Story of the Ku Klux Klan, both of which represented the horrors of racism on screen and directly confront the false narratives put forth by Griffith and The Birth of a Nation. Now, film could be fought with film. Though his movies were not allowed to flourish in the mainstream of moviedom in their own time, Michaud's work is now beginning to be studied and revered in our day, as it should be. Oscar Michaud deserves and will get his own episode or episodes, so we will leave him here for now and bid him welcome to the ongoing story of the history of film. Part 7. Why spend so much damn time talking about this? Uh, um, that is the question. The answer is, I probably shouldn't have. In a show that has to cover all of film history, which will take a decade or so at least, spending three episodes on one movie probably wasn't wise. To make it worse, it's not like it's a lovely little movie. It's one filled with racist, propagandistic trash that was used as a recruiting tool by the Klan. Still, though, there are reasons I did all of this. I know that there are a lot of really brilliant teachers of film history who are way more well-versed in this subject than me who just don't teach this movie. Even more show just a scene or two, describe it, say it was important, and move on. But I'm not convinced that's enough. I think if we don't face this movie head-on, we can get an impression of film and Hollywood history that isn't accurate, if you'll forgive the expression, a whitewashed one. We know through diligent research that The Birth of a Nation actually didn't usher new innovations onto the screen. All of the so-called achievements of the film were iterative and precedented. In 1915, though, a lot of people didn't know about that. Or care. For so many people living at the time, The Birth of a Nation was the start of the movies as we think of them now. Let me read you a few quotes of how some of Griffith's contemporaries saw his work to make that clear. Director Alan Don wrote, I had to learn from the screen. I had no other model. The only man I ever watched was Griffith, and I did just what he did. It was a wonderful, successful thing to do. I'd see his pictures and go back and make them at my company. By watching what he was doing, you learned. In his book, The Speed of Sound, Scott Eyman cites two separate occasions of critics in the 1920s comparing their experiences with the first talking pictures with the birth of a nation. They said, This movie will be for sound what the birth of a nation has been to silent pictures, or it was a very big thing, like the birth of a nation would have been. Film historian Louis Jacobs wrote in the 1930s, The birth of a nation propelled film into a new artistic level. A high point in the American movie tradition, it brought to maturity the editing principles begun with Méliès and furthered by Porter. So rich and profound an organization was the picture that for years thereafter it directly and indirectly influenced filmmakers everywhere, and much of the subsequent filmic progress owes inspiration to this master achievement. So, if part of the study of history is trying to understand how people in the past understood the events that were happening around them, 
then we must at least recognize that for many people living in 1915, the birth of a nation was a huge deal. The first movie ever made that was a cultural touchstone in the United States, and the first movie of the era of movies, which had just then begun. Another reason we need to talk about this film so much is the legendary status it has gained over the last century. For decades, this was the movie, and Griffith was the guy. It took up whole chapters in textbooks, was screened in every classroom, and was considered the foundation of cinema studies in the United States. Instructors did all this even though it's a piece of racist propaganda. Placing this movie at the center of film history would and does affect the rest of film history, and knowing about this movie will help us contextualize all historiography that comes after it. Yet another reason to pay attention to this is that Griffith and The Birth of a Nation force us to try and imagine cinema and filmmakers and skill more complexly. It can be easy to idolize people who are good at things and imagine them in the best possible light. We just saw that, like, all of academia did this with Griffith. I think that many people wanted to see Griffith as a great American genius— without recognizing that his most successful and influential work is literally evil and morally reprehensible. I think that people were so desperate to find a hero that they refused to see a villain. We still have a hard time imagining that people who are good at things can have really bad characters, and we should remember that a person can be good at editing a movie or painting a picture or writing a story and be awful at the things that matter most. That is one of the central conflicts of art, and one that's hard to deal with. The birth of a nation forces us to. Finally, and most importantly, I think we need to reckon with this movie because it tells us something essential about Hollywood. The city of so many dreams, including mine. Racism wasn't the dark side of Hollywood, it was the only side. The birth of a nation making such an unholy amount of money proved that there was a market for white supremacy in film. Hollywood gladly catered to that market. The movie going public was thrilled. We got it over and over and over, and we ate it up every time. From The Birth of a Nation, the first blockbuster that secured the city its place as the film capital of the world for decades, to The Coming of Sound, where Al Jolson ushered in a new age of cinema in blackface, singing for his mammy, to the most successful movie of all time, Gone with the Wind, which showed Hollywood at the peak of its power. All of these milestones were built on the success of The Birth of a Nation, the film that set the artistic and financial example that the movies that came after it would emulate. The Birth of a Nation was the cornerstone of an industry that is only now beginning to try and correct its foundations. We will see some complexity, some individuals, some nuance to this, but structurally, American cinema was deeply racist, and to an enormous extent, remains so. The birth of a nation played its important role in beginning and entrenching these systems into Hollywood. You don't have to watch The Birth of a Nation I actually don't even really recommend that you do, but I believe that we must understand it. It is unfortunate that this is the film 
that represents the birth of a nation of cinema lovers, and to a lesser extent, a world of cinema lovers. But it does. And the precedents that it set will show themselves far too frequently here in future episodes of the history of film. The more upbeat ending music is back because I am happy to finally be done with the Birth of a Nation episodes, and starting next week we will deal with movies that are easier to palette for a while. Thank you for listening to this <coughs> week's episode of the History of Film. I know it took me three weeks, but this episode is really long, and I can't apologize for that. Still though, regularity is my big goal right now. So to make that more feasible for me, I plan on having new episodes drop on Fridays, and I will let you know at the end of an episode whether or not I will have to delay that for anything. Also, I have a bit of exciting news. If you want to help me get the show out more regularly, there is a new way you can do that. People have expressed interest in me creating a Patreon, so I finally did it. If you would like access to weekly live streams, a special bonus podcast only for patrons, film commentaries, and most important, the knowledge that you help make this show happen, you can visit patreon.com forward slash history of film and get it all. If you're not in a position to do that, which believe me, I understand, there are other simple things that you can do to help this podcast that don't cost anything. This week, think of a person who you know who doesn't know about the show, who might like it, and tell them about it. Most of the podcasts I love have been recommended to me by people who know my tastes, and I'm always thrilled and honored when my little show gets shared that way too. My favorite fact that didn't make it into the show today is that The Birth of a Nation, of course, is still being responded to. Spike Lee, one of the great filmmakers of all time, has recalled on multiple occasions that The Birth of a Nation was screened when he was in film school. These professors only talked about how great the filmmaking was and completely omitted any discussion of content or the film's social effects. Incensed, Lee made his student film about a black filmmaker who's hired to direct a remake of The Birth of a Nation. I have not seen Spike Lee's student film, but the premise is so intriguing that I think about it constantly and will as soon as I can track it down. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to view resources for this and other episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>